Tony said to his mother, Mother, I'm not going to church today. And the mother said, well, why, Tony? He said, I don't like the people. And they don't like me. And she thought for a moment and said, but Tony, you've you got to go to church today. And he said, why? She said, because you're 40 years old. And you're the pastor. <laughs> so I'm glad you're here today at church with us. Now, I'm going to read the scripture, and I'm not going to take a lot of time to say some preliminaries. When I worked uh, with uh, the PCA, I was responsible for the women's work. And one of the things that we used to do when we prepared for our women's conferences was what the, the women call setting the table, the metaphor of preparing. So... This morning, to get into the sermon, I'm going to have to set the table for you, but listen carefully. I know you're accustomed to standing for the reading of the Word. I'm going to read the Word in two parts this morning at two different times. I'll ask you to stand for the first part, which is the preliminary passage that will introduce the passage I'm going to, to preach on, but you, when I read that, don't feel like you have to stand it will be an extension of your standing the first time. So if you have your Bibles, I ask you to stand and I will read together from John 12. Beginning in John 12 with verse 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come, in, come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken uh, to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of the world will be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. And then from verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs and wonders before them, they still did not believe in him. And so the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, quote, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. May God bless this reading of his word. This is the word of God. 
be seated. I've chosen for the scripture today one of the things that challenges anyone who preaches and teaches is to connect what you say with the needs and the lives of the people that are there. I know some of you, I don't know many of you, so I don't know what your particular needs are this morning. One of the things I am concerned about is I've had opportunities to teach classes to prospective preachers and so forth and try to practice it myself is how, how do you address your message to the needs of the people? Sometimes we're answering questions from the pulpit that people are not asking in the pew. But one of the things we have to do as a teacher also is to help the people know how to ask the right questions. So I don't know this morning how you'll relate to what I say from John 12, but I hope I can at least help you raise the right questions. John 12 is a very unique chapter in all of scripture. Every scripture, of course, is inspired of God, but it's a transitional, pivotal chapter in the Bible that takes Jesus from his public ministry of revealing himself to people through signs and wonders and moving it into a more closed setting of ministry to his disciples. We were created in the image of God. This is part of my setting the table. We were created in the image and likeness of God. As God's image, we really ought to be able to look at one another and see something of God in one another. In other words, the invisible God creating us in his image did so in a way that we ought to reflect him in our daily lives. So from the beginning, the image of God has been very important to us in our understanding of God and, and the way he, he operates. But second, we know what happened after he finished that good and perfect creation of man in his image and likeness. Man and the persons of Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God, they disobeyed God, and they fell into sin. Now, by falling into sin, they did not destroy that image of God in us, but they really messed it up. But finally, as Galatians says, in the midst of time, Christ, in the fullness of time, Christ came to earth as the incarnate God in the flesh to redeem and to restore us in the image of God in which we were created. And that's what the story of redemption in the Bible is really all about. Now, if you would remember from your knowledge of Scripture, the Jews, for the Jews, believing or seeing seemed to represent for them believing. All through the Old Testament, for example, we can see passages where the people were almost obsessed with images and idols. You remember what they did at the foot of Mount Sinai when Moses was atop the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments? They made a golden calf. 
an idol to help them in worshiping God. You remember the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the tabernacle itself, the Passover. Images and idols and symbols were very important in the Old Testament. And so I find it very interesting if we take a panoramic view of history, the role that images and idols have played with God's people. I think of Athens in, in uh, Acts 17, where Paul encountered a city full of idols, and especially the idol to the unknown God. Another interesting thing that, that you observe if you take that panoramic view and see how much emphasis is put on images and idols, the more emphasis that is put on images and idols, the less focus we put on words. The late Jacques Ellul, a French philosopher, theologian, sociologist, and professor of law, a Christian, has written many helpful and significant and insightful books, at, le at least for me. But one of the books that he, he wrote that's been very helpful to me is called The Humiliation of the Word. The Humiliation of the Word. And in there he talks about the wholesale abuse of language and the dangerous addiction that people have to images and idols in our day. And of course, we know what he's talking about because through all the electronic devices and the media, we are an image-oriented culture. Words are not always that important to us. But words are fundamental, my friends, to who we are made in the image and likeness of God. You see, God speaks, and so do we, because we are in his image and likeness. Words are important, first of all, because Jesus became the word, and also because he spoke many words to us uh, during his ministry on earth. And we're going to, we'll see this in a moment. You'll see where I'm going with this. The truth is, without meaningful words, all we're left with is images and idols which have no reality at all. If we're not careful, we tend to only believe the words we can visualize or see. I know you've heard the statement, a picture is worth a thousand words. That may not always be true, of course. But that's what sin has done in our culture today. It has drawn us more and more away from the word and words to images and idols. I could go on with this and, and, and fleshing this out more, but I think you understand what I'm trying to say. And we need to be aware of what's happening around us. The scenario of our postmodern culture, which is very image-oriented, we see words and their meaning taking a back seat in our reality, not only subliminally, but also openly. In our postmodern world, truth 
is determined by the individuals or the community or context in which those individuals find themselves. You know about that. You listened to the news last night. Yes, there is fake news. There are fake words. There are fake facts. We can make the facts and words say and mean whatever we want them to mean today because who is to tell us we're right or we're wrong? And I think that's what makes John 12 such a a uniquely critical passage of Scripture for us as Christians to be familiar with in order to live in today's world. Now, as we approach chapter 12 in the Gospel of John, Jesus is going through a transition. There, There are two phases of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of John. The first phase is his public ministry where he does signs and wonders revealing himself to the crowds. But when we come to chapter 12, that pivotal transitional passage of scripture, Jesus begins to withdraw and spend more time in solitude with his disciples in preparing them for what's about to happen. His arrest, his trial, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And I believe that that what he does here, what John does in his gospel, makes this all the more important for you and me today. Now listen to the text that I want us to focus on for a few minutes. Continuing with the reading that I, I did in John 12. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whosoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me to say. First of all, in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to himself as the light of the world, the light who shines in darkness. And he said at this point in his ministry, because of me and the fact that I'm still here, you can walk in the light a little longer. In other words, Jesus said, you can still see me right now because I have not been overtaken by darkness. And if you believe in me and hear my word, you too will not be overtaken by darkness. Because I am the light of the world, there's no need for you to walk in darkness and unbelief. Now we can see from the scriptures, and as I said, the first part of John, the first 12 chapters of John, 
how he did many signs and many wonders in the presence of the people because he himself was the sign that had come into the world. But sadly, he tells us there were, there were people who did not believe him. People who continued to walk in darkness. So what's happening at this point in John 12 <coughs> actually is a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy from the, from the prophet Isaiah. God gave Isaiah hundreds of years before Christ came to earth a vision of what the story of redemption and the story of Christ was all about. When that day would come, Isaiah said, back in the Old Testament, Jesus would come as the light of the world, but people would not believe him. They would not follow him. They would continue to walk in darkness. And as we read John 12, we say, boy, was Isaiah ever right with his prophecy. That's exactly what's happened. Though some believed in Jesus and followed him, some believed in Jesus but did not follow him because they were afraid of the Pharisees and the Sadducees that they would be expelled from the synagogues because Jesus said they were more concerned with the power and glory of man than the power and glory of God. And that's what constituted Jesus' warning at this particular time uh, to us in his word. What Isaiah foretold hundreds of years before it happened was actually taking place right now. While some believe me, Jesus said, and are walking with me, others are continuing to walk in darkness. And as I read this, I'm reminded that it's a dangerous thing to walk in darkness, to walk in the darkness of superstition and ignorance and idolatry and not walk with the Lord. But that's where I believe we are today as a culture. We are not walking with the Lord. We're following after darkness. My friend, Dr. Rick Phillips, the pastor of Second PCA Church in Greenville, his, his, volume, his commentary on John says, we could take the first part of John's gospel, the first 12 chapters, and entitle them the book of signs and wonders where Jesus shows us who he is. He said you can start with chapter 13 through chapters 21 and entitle that the book of passion, where he focuses on teaching his disciples about his death and his suffering on the cross. And I think Rick is right. So chapter 12 becomes a bridge, if you will, of those two parts. You know, the Lord wants us to know just as God spoke to Isaiah in the vision of the good news of the gospel of the kingdom in the Old Testament, he now speaks to us in the words of Christ and the signs of Christ. Look at verses 49 and 50, and he says that, Jesus says that very clearly. I've not spoken on my own authority. Even though that should have been enough, he said, but I've spoken on the authority of God the Father who sent me. He has given me commandment regarding what I am to, was to say and speak. Therefore, Jesus said, what I say to you, I say to you 
what the Father has told me to say. And as I unfold this a little bit for you, when we get to the end, I want you to ask the question, so what about what we see here? Who is God? Who is God? Our catechism asks that question. Jesus speaks of God. Do we need any more authority than that? Well, let's look at this. As you know, the people down through the centuries have tried to define God in so many ways. A personal God, an impersonal God. A distant and removed God or a very present God. Many gods are one idol. The animistic definitions of God are voluminous, and we could go on and on with that. But the truth is, as Bill prayed in his prayer, there's only one living and true God. If I were to ask you this morning, what do you think or what would you say is so unique about our Christian God? What would you say? What do you think is so unique about our God? Now, obviously, I've thought about this question because I've studied this passage of Scripture. I would answer that question like this. The uniqueness about our God is that he speaks. Our God speaks. There's no other God to speak. All the other gods are idols and dead images. But how does God speak to us? Do we hear voices? Primarily, he speaks to us in his word. In the Bible. In the word of God, he tells us who he is, where he is, what he wants us to know, to believe, and to do. That's why we find in the Bible, whether we're reading words from Moses or David or the Apostle Peter or John or, or Paul, the writers of the Bible, that's why we find them telling us they were writing the very word of God in our scriptures. They used the Greek word called theomnoptus, inspired, moved along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inspired the words of this book, this very special book. Now, other religions have their books. For example, the Muslims have their Quran. They were not written by God. Some claim to be written by an angel, however, but not God. The Bible was written by God himself as he inspired these holy men of old to write his words. Because of this, we can believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. It's clear that the purpose of the Bible is to point us to the triune God through Jesus Christ. Now, you may have heard a statement like this, I've, I've heard it many times. The Bible is not an end in itself. 
but it points us to God. Have you ever heard that? I was taught it in seminary. It sounds good, but the problem with a statement like that is it tends to separate God from his word. And we can't do that. God cannot be separated from his word. Though he used those human writers to pen the words of scripture, they wrote the very words of God for us. That's so clear in this text that I just read from John 12. Whether the word of God is spoken or whether it's read, it's the word. It doesn't simply contain the word of God. It is the word of God. Our only infallible rule of faith and practice. I had a professor in seminary years ago who used to talk about how Christians tend to worship the Bible. Bibliolatry, he, he, he would call it. Making an idol out of the Bible. I don't know whether you've ever heard that or not, but there are those who claim that. I believe that's really a smokescreen from our enemy. If we can make an idol out of the word of God, then you know what else we can do? We can make an idol of God. Because God and his word are inseparable. I've heard people also talk about having a superstitious idea of a reverence for the Bible. Now, how do you have a superstitious reverence for the Bible? Well, if you remember the Jews in the Old Testament, they would not speak the name God because God was so holy. So they used other names, Adonai, Jehovah, Lord, to refer to God. I am that I am because they would not say the name God. But he was holy. They were sinful. And there are people that look at this and say, it says on the cover of my Bible, the Holy Bible. So I dare not read that Bible. Oh, I can use it to press some flowers or to put some notes away for, for future reference. But this is too holy a book for me to try to read. But the scripture says, search me for in them you think you have life. The testimony of God and the testimony of the Bible are synonymous. You remember when Jesus asked the scribes and the Pharisees about their belief? He said, have you not read? You're ignorant of scripture. He goes on to talk about that in Matthew 26 and Luke 24, among other passages. Now, the apostles and the prophets remind us that when we read the word of God, it must be properly interpreted. Because like anything else, we can make the Bible say anything we want it to say. But let me ask you this question. Is there anything more important than knowing God? Well, I would answer that question, yes, there is. It's knowing the true God. 
because not all men know the real true God. I say that because we know there are people who try to deny God. The psalmist said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I, I had the opportunity to read and review a book a few years back before I left uh, the PCA offices called America's Four Gods. It's written by two Christian scholars, Paul Froshi and Christopher Bader. This book tells about a voluminous study that these Baylor University professors did across the country about people's belief in God. And they found all kinds of things, but they were able, with the help of the computer, to narrow it down to four different perspectives about God. And their conclusion was, though most everybody said they believed in God, not everybody said they believed in the same God. Now, this is critical because our life depends on knowing the true and living God. You tell me you know God. I'll ask you, how do you know God? How do you know that you know the true God? Well, I can tell you without the least amount of hesitation, the least amount of uncertainty, you can only know God because he speaks to us in his word. Now, it is true that he speaks to us in creation around us, as he says in Psalm 19. It's, again, sometimes he speaks to us his truth through other people. But we can only know God as we know him from his word. Now, let me ask you another question. I don't know whether you paid any attention or not, but have you read my sermon topic in the, in the bulletin? Can you tell me why I chose that particular lengthy topic? Don't make this mistake regarding God. That's the title. What mistake? The mistake of trying to know God apart from his word. Don't ever try to do that. Not only is it a risky thing to do, it's impossible. But you might say, Charles, isn't that a bit of an exaggeration? Isn't that too, too broad a statement for you to make? Isn't that somewhat politically incorrect? I think on the basis of the scripture that I read to you from verses 44 through 50, that in saying that, I'm only saying to you what Jesus said to us. He that has seen me has seen the Father. He who hears my words are not only hearing me, but they're hearing what the Father told me to say. So as I begin to wrap this up, what, what does this passage of Scripture really have to say? And what does it have to say for us? What does God intend for us to learn? What is the answer to your so what question, Charles? First of all, Jesus says, 
I only speak to you what the Father has told me to say. Verse 49. Second, that means if you do not believe me and you reject me, you also reject God the Father. And third, as I move through this transition, pivotal point in my public ministry into the more private ministry with my disciples, here's what I want you to know. And here's what I want you to believe. You remember Jesus said already, and John recorded it in the third chapter of John, for God so loved the world. He goes on to say, I have not come to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. He's already said that. And here he says it again. He says, I have not come to judge the world. But there will be a judgment. And the judgment that will, come, that will come upon those who do not believe will be the very word of God that they rejected. That will be their judge. Unbelievers will be judged by the word of God on the day of, of judgment. Why? Because verse 49, he says, I've not spoken on my own authority, but only what the Father has told me to say. So here's the bottom line. My friends, if we're not listening to nor obeying the word of God, we cannot hope to have eternal life nor to escape God's terrible judgment because we will be judged by what we reject. So do you get the point? Do you see what Jesus is saying right here in this passage of Scripture? When we talk about the Lord and his word, we're not only speaking about the personal God, but we're also talking about his written word as well, the Bible. And what do we do with this Bible? Do we argue with it? Do we disbelieve it? Do we challenge it? Do we try to interpret it the way we want to read it and interpret it ourselves? Do we disagree with what the Bible says? Let's be honest. Sometimes we do all of those things, don't we? But that's not what we're supposed to do because it's the word of God. And that's why we must read it and hide it in our hearts. When we hear the scripture read, when we read the scripture, God is speaking to us. Through his word. Whether we're reading from Moses. Or John. Or the epistles. Or the book of Revelation. It doesn't matter. The Bible contain, is the word of God. It's alive. The, the writer of Hebrews says. The word of God is alive. And powerful. And sharper than any two-edged sword. Because it pierces into the very depths of our being. So contrary to what postmodernism says today, there is truth. There is authority. The Bible is God's word, our only infallible rule of faith in life. We're not free to interpret the Bible to make it say whatever we want it to say. 
And that's why I think John 12 speaks right to the area where our enemy is trying to do his greatest work among the people today. And that is to question the existence of truth and authority. But you remember Pilate's question to Jesus on the night of his arrest and trial? What is truth? Jesus didn't respond to Pilate that truth is whatever you want it to be. He simply said, I am the truth. I have come for the purpose of bearing witness to the truth. So as I close this morning, I have to ask you this question. How often in your daily life do you allow God to speak to you? That's what he's doing each time we read the Bible or we hear it read. So how often do you allow God to speak to you in your routine of life? I'm going to close with a statement, and I want you to listen carefully. I want you to tell me, one, what is right about this statement, but I also want you to tell me what is wrong about the statement. Listen carefully. The statement is, we read the Bible because it points us to something bigger. Now, what's right about that? Well, what's right about it is the Bible does point us to the sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present God. But what's wrong with that? We can't separate God from his word. The bigger thing that it points us to is in the word, the revelation of God himself. That's why we can't live a normal, happy Christian life that honors God apart from the Bible. So you know what that means. If we reject these words, God will reject us. We need to read it. We need to study it. We need to hear it read and preached. And we need to hide it in our hearts. We have to make time in our lives and our schedule to meet with God. To let God speak to us and to listen with the intent of understanding who God is and what he does and what his will is for our lives. And I'll tell you this and then I'll pray. If you will do that, I will promise you this morning that you will have the same experience that King David had when he meditated upon God. You remember what he said in Psalm 139, verse 17? How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. Where did he find God's thoughts? In the Word. That's why Romans says faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of God. And that's why you and I are are called the people of the word. Because we're the people of God. 
who speaks to us from his word. Let's listen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God this morning, we thank you that you are a God who has spoken to us and continues to speak to us through your word, telling us what you want us to know and to do and believe. And I pray for each one here this morning, including myself, that we will be disciplined to listen daily to your word with the intent of believing and practicing. Help us, we pray, to know who you are, to know you better and to love you more and to serve you more fully. We want our lives to count. We don't want to believe in a false God. We want to believe in the living and true God through Jesus Christ. Help us to that end. In his name we pray. Amen.